Welcome to Threads of Healing, conversations with the wayward and the wise. This is your host, Dr. Ila Munger, coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. Threads of Healing is the space for exploring what healing could mean by having deep conversations with wisdom keepers, doctors, artists, storytellers, fact finders and visionaries, we bring awareness to the voices who have answered their call to heal and to discover a new way of living, breathing and being in the world and will inspire you to do the same. So today we are having a conversation with someone who is a very special part of my life. I've been keeping her to myself for way too long and today it feels like I'm sharing her with you because I really believe the world would be a better place by knowing her. So Annie Snayman is a highly accomplished South African artist, poet and environmentalist who works deeply with the poetry of land and in collaboration with nature to offer moments of pause, presence and healing to all those who engage with her creations. Many of her large-scale nature installations and earth drawings can even be seen from Google Earth. For the past few years, I have had the profound privilege of spending every Monday afternoon and every Wednesday morning in Annie's company, painting with her, walking with her, sharing ideas, insights, books. And it's just really a profound privilege to have her in the studio with me today. So, Annie, welcome to Threads of Healing. Thank you, Ila. I'm very honored to be here with you and listening to all your previous um, conversations. It's, it's a real honor to be here. So, Annie, I knew that I had met a kindred spirit when I came across a piece of your work that you collaborated with, with a friend, Eugenie Krobler, called Disobedience Training. <laughs> uh, that was a fantastic time of um, our lives. It was around 27, um, 8 that those conversations started. We were um, deeply concerned about the environmental situation and, uh, and, and also so concerned about our complicitness in this in the situation. I mean, it's, you can't avoid... Uh, ruining something all the time. You drive, you eat, you um, wear clothes that are made in ways that shouldn't be. You know, mm -hmm. so it's the complicit um, structure of being, uh, even in your awareness, that you you are always obedient to the culture that is so destructive. So that led to um, us thinking, well, why? How does one become disobedient? But then it was more complex than that because just uh, rebelling against something just sends you into the other end of the spectrum and then you do exactly the same things. In a different way. Absolutely. Well, even in the same way. You yeah. know, violence begets violence and yes. if you're violent again uh, against another human being, they're also animals. So it, it, it's the... You, you cannot actually just rebel because rebellion is also obedience to the system, specifically our culture 
is incredibly violent and it it breeds more and more violence in itself and thereby perpetuates itself so um so it was a very deep question to figure out how does one become disobedient and then we eventually created a, a little workshop that we called disobedience training you know and we had oh i want to <laughs> come to that <laughs> Uh, it's not nearly as much fun as you might think. <laughs> so, um, what did you do Um Well, we we basically got friends together and said, "Let's try and think this out together." Mm. Um, and one of the first things that we realized was that somewhere between the obedience and rebellion, um, you know, so if you say that the two sides are so the east and the west. Um, you have a place where they come together again. Mm. And right in that middle or on the very further side when the one changes into the other, in that paradox, you're as close to the truth as you're ever going to get. Wow. So then we said, how do you stay? How do you stay in that dead zone? Mm. Um, and the word dead zone came from the place in the in Berlin, where between the east and the west of Berlin, they had about a hundred meter wide um, piece between the walls, where no human beings were allowed for about thirty years, mm. and the nature just uh, flourished there. Foxes, deer, um, snakes, everything came back in the middle of the city. And now the dead zone in Berlin is the green zone, the life zone. Oh, wow. So we thought, how do we create that dead zone in ourselves? How do you become present? So that was, that's actually the disobedience journey, um, is looking for the paradox. Wow. And so in that process, I guess one has to visit both sides of the polarity in order to kind of really drop into that moment? Does, does it require that one visits both ends of the spectrum of the duality? We worked out this little system um, that's very useful in creativity. Um, and it is looking for your symptom. So if you have a if you are triggered by something or if you're worried about something or if you have found yourself making the same mistake often, mm -hmm. is to look for your symptom. Where in your body is this located? You know? yeah. So if, um, if you're very angry or, or very scared or there's somewhere in your body that that specific symptom is located, lives, right. it lives yeah. there. And then you try and, and be with that. You stay with your symptom until you can find its opposite within you as well. So it's, it's really a very intense slowing, slowing down process. Um, and of course then after 14 years we realized, no, ach, the Buddhists have gotten this a long time ago, <laughs> but we had to find it out, out our own way. But isn't that just a profound process of healing is that, you know, we can read all the texts in the world, all the self-help books in the world, but true healing happens when we own it for ourselves and we commit to that process. And, you know, it's a slow kind of personal uncovering of the layers of, our, of who we are. 
I think so. Um, it's good to live with the not knowing in yourself, you know, to, to live with it and not to just accept um, uh, holy scriptures and, and other people's words for things. You do need to, to feel it in yourself. Otherwise, um, why are you on this journey? You know. And I feel that your your work, your art, is really a deep exploration of what you have just spoken about now. That it's not just about lights and and you know um, uh, harp music and and equanimity. That to arrive at this place that is beyond duality, that one has to visit the cycle of birth and death. I think it's good creative discipline and good life discipline um, not to try and shy away from the dark places and the low places. Um, that's where the potential lies. That's where water flows to. It's um, The uncomfortable things are the things that will give you new insights. Uh, the comfortable things tend to blind us. And, um, and uh, One thing you said just now is that you arrive at this place beyond duality. And uh, um, one of our language problems is that we always have a, uh, a static word for a thing. Uh, and destination point. Destination point, point yes. yes. Mm. And, and I think it's more of a flow. It's always a flow, it's always a transformation, it's a changing, it's a falling, it's not a place. Yes. It's a motion, it's a verb. Wow, that's beautiful. And that this is constantly in process, as nature is. Yes, absolutely. Well, the, the whole thing, if you slow yourself down enough, if you try and be present in the moment, the moment is changing all the time. You're, you know, it's as if the moment is the crucible of transformation. Why do you think it is that human beings are so averse to feeling discomfort? Well, it's scary, it's painful, it's all the reasons why we are. I think we think we can avoid it. Mm. It's, it's the, because we experience life in, in the two opposites, or we at least describe it to ourselves in opposites. We always need to know what is the opposite of what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking or what I, because that's the way we describe things as language and it's also perceptions. You know, you can't, in a gray room with everything gray, you can't see anything. You need contrast. Um, but we have forgotten that we need both. You know, you can't actually see the light if you if there's no darkness and you can't, experience the stillness if there's no noise you know so i think it's just that we think we can avoid it mm. um which is like this covid epidemic mm. um the epidemic itself i think is not nearly as um serious as the culture's reaction to it mm. that is pretending that this is a surprise that some of us die 
and trying to avoid it, actively trying to avoid it and making it like this is a terrible thing. And it is the way that life sustains itself is through death. So I'm I'm really concerned about our cultural um not a blind spot, it's like a mm. impenetrable sunglasses. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and it, it's like the collective reaction to this pandemic is a a reflection of how we in, as individuals work with our own shadow work with our own pain, work with our own resistance to suffering, work with our own, or not work with our own kind of fear of death. Yes. You know, and it's almost a, well, it is a primal fear, but in really confronting it, in accepting the inevitability of it, there's a kind of freedom, there's a kind of expansion that happens in just dropping into that ultimate fear for sure and it um it maybe because it's a primal fear that little bit of expansion freedom acceleration happens every time mm-hmm. <laughs> you almost don't get tired of it of of saying well maybe today i will you know face this final um, so I think it's it it makes you more alive because it can be seen as as the opposite something that's quite morbid and you know but in fact where as you were saying when we can really really drop into the into the not knowing into the depth of that into the darkness of that that offers the profound opportunity to touch something, to open to something. Yes, and to, I think that's where gratitude lies, you know, to actually experience this incredible gift. Mm. Yeah. Mm. You know, what, what is really a profound experience for me was being in the studio with you for the last few months on a Monday afternoon and watching the creation and destruction process of your work of art, your current work that you call a shroud. And that for weeks you would work on portraits, you would work on a particular image and a flow of images that felt complete and in the next moment you would paint over it. Yes. Um, the shroud, um, I was trying in this wonderful opportunity of COVID lockdown when um, there were almost no interruptions um, to, to immerse myself in the transformational energy of everything. And to try and follow and give visual expression to that energy that is always um, feeding on itself and and it, and it has no qualms about destruction um, because it's, it just uses the old bit for the new part, you know, it is not, 
and and it and it is not a um it's not an evil hateful destruction it's actually quite loving um which was a which was a good experience was it something that you consciously had to work with within yourself um i don't know you know with painting you you do it there's a conscious part and then there's a very part huge uh, surprise in it that you had no idea that you could do that or it's the paint doing it or yeah. you know you don't know where it comes from yes so really it's a an experience of getting oneself out of the way or allowing oneself just to get out of the way definitely and so to me the lovely thing about any art form whether it's poetry or writing or um painting is that you can step back and almost see your sequence of presences um and understand what has happened mm. you know um if you if you do things that have not got a record in them you don't know where you've been and you and you and you get to the same place again and again and you don't actually know that you're not on exactly the same level mm. but when you paint or when you do art for years you find that you get to the same point again but you are lower or higher on the spiral it's like a spiral and really that creativity or the creative process is a is a healing act and i see so many parallels in the healing process and in the creative process and in fact it's it's the same thing it's amazing to me i mean i'm watching you and listening to you around your process of thinking through um issues in the in the in the medical culture that is much older but at least 2000 years of written and recorded uh, collective work i mean to me that is the most amazing thing about medicine um we- modern western medicine but then there's always all there's also all these other systems that have that are just as old or older some and and how you are bringing things together and and interacting really creatively with this incredible um i don't know what to call it a treasure chest of knowledge mm. you know but you are dealing with it in a in a vibrant way and whether it's a healing process a creative process they both involve a respect of the cycles of creation and destruction of the doing and the undoing definitely this um my, one of my favorite artists is louise bourgeois she worked until she was almost 90 she died recently but one of her artworks in the tate modern um was i do i undo i redo these three huge towers steel towers that you could uh, climb into and out of and with works inside and outside and i just that is exactly what it is that, that i do kind of this commitment like marriage and i undo and i redo you know uh, to me that is kind of that is the the point is you commit 
to this thing again and again and again. And it can be a really uncomfortable process. It's it's not always easy, the no. undoing. No, definitely not. Um, but uh, we have to to renew. Mm. You have to undo yourself, undo your old ID identities. You know, yeah, ideas of who you are and roles, and you know that we spend so much time building up, developing, yes. <laughs> arriving yes. to working for yes. even. Yeah, no, and and we, and then when you think you've arrived, then you know, oh hell, I'm gonna go. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely gonna fall any second now. <laughs> yeah, and it speaks to what you were saying about this, you know, this kind of destination drive, this addiction towards arriving at a destination, a point, a, a moment in time, that you know you feel you've arrived, and and so we spend our whole lives kind of driving ourselves towards that place and then you realize oh okay this is not real or this is not what i thought it was or this is actually not what i want and <laughs> so that that process begins of undoing of dying and sometimes it, it, it arrives in a in a way that is just so shocking and so traumatic definitely i think a lot of our problems in our society is that people have a lot of shoulds in their lives. They they think that bad things shouldn't happen. Mm. Um, but it's impossible not to. Mm. And um, uh, my, my son <coughs> made me read this book, Jerusalem, a biography. I'm not through it yet. Oh, it's terrible. It's the... It's, um, just one slaughter upon another slaughter upon another uh, genocide from many sides. There are lots of cultures that actually convene in Jerusalem. And um, uh, my son is a history nut. So he just told me to, Mom, just try. And I was doing this Yoda thing on me. <laughs> so, um, And I, for many years, for about... Well, 26 years since he was born, um, I've been avoiding the news. I'm the most ignorant person you can find in Johannesburg. I know nothing. I cannot even recognize Kim Kardashian on TV. So um, You're not alone. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> um, so, uh, and the main reason why I avoid the news is because um, I, I feel it, you know, and, and I can't deal with all this trauma. So... So now I have to read 4,000 years of trauma in Jerusalem, the biography. So, and, and I always thought that it would make, I would crumble under this, all this injustice and suffering and stuff um, and despise humanity even more than I used to because of where we are. And strangely enough, this book is actually, by forcing me to actually look at it, I am finding myself more empathetic towards humanity. Wow. But isn't that the whole point of visiting suffering? Isn't that the whole kind of gift of, of empathy, of, of going there, of visiting the darkness within ourselves and and looking at the darkness around us? It seems to be. 
And then, you know, you spend so many years thinking that this is what you're doing and then suddenly you realize, but you haven't quite been doing that, you know. Yeah. Um, so we all avoid things. And we don't, sometimes you know you're avoiding something, but mm. you have to face it at some time, some stage, because otherwise you are not complete. Mm. What do you think we need in, in order to feel more safe to visit that which is so terrifying for us to visit? Wow. To feel more safe. That's a is great, it, that's is a great it a question, a, because yes. uh, you do need... a. A holding space, generally. Um, I've been very um, fortunate in my life to always have a holding space, someone, something, someone that believes in what I'm doing. Or um, And you can never do, well, art you can never do without that holding space. Mm. Uh, we have a big myth around the artist as being this loner. But you will always find that artists have a people that support them mm. and um, uh, people that they speak to, people that have critical input and um, inspirational uh, connections. So I think the point is that you need relations. I think we again it's it's a it's a, a web of motion of flow it's not a stationary place it's where it's like the eddy in a stream where you have you need you have the silence but you are yeah, still connected you're always connected yes I feel that that's the gift that you have offered me in my own process of um, making sense of things, my growth. Um, you've offered a space of connection, but also presence. You know, just walking with you, seeing the world through your eyes has supported me in becoming so much more present and engaging with your art, engaging with my kind of playful messing around with art, it's, it's really profoundly shifted the way I'm seeing myself in the world. Well, I'm uh, glad because you've done the same for me. Yeah. Um, but it's this connection that you're speaking about, mm. the holding space. And I, I think that's so important um, is to choose those, those connections to create that container for ourselves, to accept the support that is around us, the connection, and even with nature. Definitely. I, uh, to me, um, we're so human-focused that that's sometimes what makes us so feel so isolated. But um, anything can be your connection. Rock. Mm. Anything. Speaking of rocks... Tell us about your latest installation. In Anwanis? Uh, yes, oh. the, the rock shroud. Well, I have to just um, make this little caveat. Um, it's not just mine. It's always uh, myself, my brother, and lots of volunteers that call themselves, the, or we call ourselves, the site-specific um, 
land art or nature art collective. Um, we've been engraving a rock in Hermanus on the cliffs on at Gearing's Point, a place called Combois, which means kitchen. Um, and I don't know if you know, but Hermanus used to be a whaling point, mm-hmm. a whaling station. So I presume that they were doing a lot of the um, processing of the whale carcass at this point. And therefore, over the last hundred years or so, the, the, especially the seagulls have become used to food there at that place. Um, but obviously now, last 50 years or so, this has not happened. But it's a beautiful, beautiful view over the ocean. And uh, there are dassies that live there, and seagulls, and lizards, and mossies, and kranstaver. Uh, rock pigeons, <laughs> rock pigeons, yes. So, um, uh, four years ago, we found a rock. They were being excavated um, a couple of blocks away from this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were doing a new development. So we took this rock, um, probably a ton or so, um, a very nice uh, uh, crane operator took the rock for us um, and from the excavation and all the way down the road into this touristy place and plonked it down and then we engraved a dasi on it and we um, filled the holes, the engraving line, uh, with ball bearings that then rusted so four years later, the Fine Arts Committee asked us to come and work on it again. So we added a seagull and a, a lizard and a pigeon and a mossy to the to the rock, and uh, it's been and and also a basin um, that when it rains it fills with water, and the dasis came and looked at what we were doing, and the seagulls came to drink water. It was as if they knew that we were making this artwork uh, for them. It was lovely. But you also covered it with a shroud. Yes, the shroud that we spoke about earlier that you um, saw the making and unmaking of. Mm. Which now I've cut that shroud that was about six by five meters mm. into three p- parts. And now I'm working on three different shrouds from that one. Why shroud? I think we need to look at our um, death uh, rituals and the way we process our dead bodies. Um, I read somewhere that the human being is the only species on earth that hoards its dead. Um, you know, we keep our dead people around, we bury them together. We wow. Yeah, it is a bit strange. But... Um, I've always been interested environmentally um, in water. And what I've realized lately is that burial, um, especially when we have so many um, endemic illnesses and medications in our bodies, um, that burial um, is not a good practice for the groundwater because um, obviously the graves get wet and the water... Uh, seeps through the bodies and then it um, poisons the groundwater. Wow, so we're even complicit when we're dying. Yes. And um, obviously the same can be said about air 
in terms of an energy, in terms of cremations. So our cultures need adjustment. And um, as artists, I feel we have a role to play in creating culture. So um, um, I'm hoping that we can shift back into a more part of the cycle way of disposing of our dead. Probably, most probably not in my lifetime, but you know, you, you sow the seed. Um, I know that in Namibia, the Nama people are still allowed to leave their dead um, in the open felt for scavengers to come and eat. And obviously in Tibet, uh, the sky burial is still a thing. It's just that as a species, we eat more than anyone else on the planet. And we refuse to give that back to the cycle of life. Um, I'm always sounding like the Lion King here. But <laughs> it's we need to return ourselves to give back the gift. Wow. So Annie, we've been speaking so much about death as... Uh, well, we've been speaking so much about death and the acceptance of death as part of the, the healing process, the creative process. It's something that I have been personally working with, you know, in my own life, just really going there, even taking myself consciously to the moment of my, my last breath. Because I feel that there's something there. There's a, it's, it offers an opening to a deeper understanding um, of myself, of life. And so working with you in the space of, you know, um, creating the shroud and you working with the same thing in a, in a different way, um, we've been having a real, uh, real conversation about this. And, and so it's led to this idea of, of doing this exhibition, right? Yes, I'm very excited about the thought. It's much more than an exhibition. Um, from my perspective, obviously, there are the shouts that I'm seeing as uh, hopefully beautiful, evocative objects that would lead to a culture where people can have family shouts instead of caskets, you know, killing a tree for every person and, um, and that there could be beautiful rituals around um, leaving your person um, in a portal of sorts where it, uh, your person can be returned to the wild and to nature. Um, but what is exciting to me about the exhibition that for lack of a better word at the moment, that you and I have been imagining would be where there could be um, meditations and breathing workshops into thinking about death, thinking, understanding and, and going towards your own mortality to, to feel it, to, to understand through that your, your vitality. You know, to to make it a, a cultural event is more what you and I have, have been talking yeah. about. And also a healing journey, because especially at this time, there have been so many rituals that haven't happened because of the pandemic. Oh, yes. You know, um, funeral rites that haven't 
happened because people were unable to gather, were unable to, you know, really create the funeral services that are really important. Yes, um, and uh, death for us is very closely linked to most religions and also to our sense of sacredness. So sacred spaces um, are very often linked to burial rites and ancestral grounds. So um, just as an environmentalist, I had this little crazy idea that if you if you um, buried or left enough dead people in a wild place, uh, human beings will leave it alone <laughs> because they will be scared. You know, so they or at least have a sense of sacredness. So it's um, it's both a profoundly deep um, investigation and also quite funny at times because human beings are funny. We we weird. We oh yeah, mm. and wayward. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and deeply wise too, and. Um, um. Not sure about that one, but I'm definitely working towards seeing the wisdom in in my fellow human beings, you know, as much as possible. And mm. it's always it's one of those things you can always see in someone else. Mm. Well, I am deeply honoured to have your way, witness, and wisdom in my life. And uh, yeah, thank you. Um, and I'm sure that everyone who's listening out there is feeling as inspired as I do every time I'm in your presence. Thank you, Annie. Thank you for listening to Threads of Healing, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ila Manga. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And feel free to leave a review and tell us what you think. If you have found this podcast inspiring and useful, and you know someone who would too, please feel free to pass this along.